Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. Never tell me the odds. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones. And this is the Church Planner Podcast. Welcome to the Church Planner Podcast. This is Peyton Jones, joined by Pete Mitchell and a very special guest today. Our guest is Lana Silk from Transform Iran. She serves as the CEO of this ministry in the USA, where she actively seeks to bring freedom to the people of Iran, transforming the nation into one which bears the image of Christ. Through ministry and humanitarian aid, Lana hopes that Transform Iran will create divine change in the lives of the Iranian people. Lana was born and raised in Iran before immigrating to the UK. With over 20 years marketing experience across all media, Lana has a passion to see small businesses and startups gain their voice in a competitive environment. She's also worked as a church minister, worship leader, and most recently a college chaplain, where she took further postgraduate studies in working with youth with a focus on mental health and safeguarding. She is trilingual and considers it her life calling to represent and advocate for the people of Iran and the West. Lana currently lives with her husband and three children in Ohio, actively operating Transform Iran's mission. So, Lana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And this is only like our fifth time restarting it, but that's okay. So, uh, <laughs> Lana, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you come to faith? I was born in a very passionate, for Jesus, spirit-filled family in Iran. My father's father. Um, was a first-generation Christian, and he um, had a radical encounter with the Lord, and the whole family ended up having meetings every night for several years in their home. And that's really where the spirit-filled movement in Iran began, out of their home. It grew to a point, much like how we read in Acts, where it grows and overflows, and people are you know, hanging out of windows to hear what God's saying. They had that whole experience, and then they had to find a building to accommodate the growing crowd. And so my father was raised in that atmosphere. My mom came to faith through that ministry. And I was born as um, 
uh, in the legacy of all of it. So that's it started that way. I would have been probably six or seven years old when my mum sat me down. I remember the scene she was ironing and we were talking mm-hmm. about the things of God. And she said, you know, Lana, God doesn't have any grandchildren. And if you want to be a child of God, you have to be a child of God yourself. You don't get to be in the family because of me and dad. And that's how we had the conversation. And I gave my life to the Lord very early on. Wow. That's actually, I've never heard that line before, but I like it. Yeah. It is a cool line. It worked. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about what is the mission of Transform Iran? The mission is Iran. It's the people of Iran and really to see the encounter with Jesus and the life-changing experience that that is for whole communities to be healed, to um, see thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people saved and connected to the love of Jesus. So we talk about bringing the love and power of Christ to Iran, and that is our mandate to see transformation across the whole country, whether it's the most influential, educated, elite, or the poorest, illiterate, most discarded, they all need the love of Jesus. Wow, that's amazing. Well, tell us a little bit, um, because there's your story, and then there's Transform Iran's story. Bridge the gap for us. How did you get involved in that? Um, Well, it's another family story. (laughs) So um, back in 1988, so I would have been coming up to my 10th birthday. We are now 10 years into the Islamic government, the regime change that happened in 79. uh, And we're just coming out of a 10-year war with Iraq. So the dynamics in Iran are changing, persecutions increasing a little bit, but also there's a little bit of stability because the war has ended. And quite a few believers began to leave Iran and the Lord spoke to my parents and told them they needed to leave. And they were extremely hesitant, heavily involved in the church, um, seeing that things were getting tougher for Christians and wanting to be there with their Christian family. So they spoke to each other and um, very tentatively brought this up. The Lord is speaking to me. I think he's telling us to leave. I, I don't know if I've heard right. Oh, I'm hearing the same thing. So they decided to not discuss it for a month and just go privately pray with the Lord and fast and journal and see what God was saying to each of them so that they could then compare. And then they came back and compared notes and everything lined up. God was very clear that he wanted them to leave. So they took that to the overseeing pastor of the church, um, Reverend Haik Hofsep Yanmer, who's one of the greats of our Iranian church history. Um, I know him as Uncle Haik. He was my dad's best friend. Um, they spoke with him and they said, this is what we believe the Lord is telling us. And he said to them, you've heard wrong. We need you here. So they were really happy to hear that. Went back home. That night, Uncle Hyde had his dream. And the Lord spoke to him in a dream and said, you need to release them. And there's an urgency to it. You need to tell them to leave quickly. So we had a knock on the door early hours of the morning with him saying, um, you did hear right. God spoken to me in a dream and confirmed it. You need to leave quickly. <clears throat> so I was coming up to my 10th birthday then. And I remember the sudden upheaval all of it, of all of it, and the um, urgency of it. You can't take anything out of Iran. It's all um, mm. controlled. You're searched. Your bags are searched. You're searched. So we had to literally pack up and go and leave it all behind. And it was a little bit like how the Lord called Abraham out, you know, when he called him out, but he didn't give him the whole picture. He had to obey first and step away. And then God showed him where he was really going and what he wanted to do with him. And it did have that sense to it when we came out. And then the Lord spoke to them again and said, 
the church is about to be driven underground, persecution is going to increase, and I need you here to be resourcing and strengthening what will become a heavily persecuted underground church. And of course, that's what happened. Wow. Can can you tell me what does the church look like in Iran right now? The church is thriving in Iran right now. It wow. is active. It is growing. Um, uh, Open Doors, Operation World, they will say that it's the fastest growing church in the world. Um, it is, um, if not exactly that, certainly close to that. There is full-blown awakening, revival. There is so much hunger and interest to find an alternative and and to find truth. Um, and so my father will often say the Ayatollahs that came into Iran were some of the greatest evangelists Iran has ever had. Um, because before the Islamic Revolution, you could have counted several hundred maybe believers of a Muslim background. And now there are over a million believers of a Muslim background. That's only in 45 years. It's been such a complete turn of the tide because people have been exposed to the reality of the darkness that they had embraced thinking it was life. And then they saw it for what it really was. And then they went looking for truth and they found Jesus. So it's an exciting time to be in ministry in Iran. However, in on human terms, it's completely controlled and limited. It's illegal for people to leave Islam. It's illegal for any worship to happen um, in the Farsi language, the national language. So Armenian and Syrian communities are allowed to have their churches in their own language, but they're not allowed to have any Bibles or any teaching in the Persian language. They're not allowed to allow, welcome Muslims into their meetings or people of a Muslim background. So really for all intents and purposes, the ch church is all underground, but it's thriving and growing. Hmm. That's amazing. So uh, obviously it's it's been in the news quite a bit that there was, um, you know, a protest over the uh, treatment of women uh, stemming from a murder. It was kind of like the equivalent in America of the George Floyd incident. There was something like that in Iran and it it kicked off at least in in America where the news is terrible, right? Like we, America has tunnel vision about the news. It's weird. You don't think anything ever happens, but that kind of crept in. You know, it got through the cracks, which shows it's kind of a big deal. Back when I lived in the UK, the BBC, like every night, you'd know what was going on in the world. But here it's a little different. But I mean, that actually sent ripples around the world. Talk to us a little bit about that and what Transform Iran is doing to help. Iranian women specifically? It was a very significant event in Iran's story for certain. So for those who don't know, the story is about Masa Amini. Her Kurdish name is Yina. She's, uh, she was a 22-year-old Kurdish girl who was visiting Tehran. And um, in Iran, women have to be covered. And there are all sorts of rules about hairlines showing and necklines and wrists and ankles and all sorts. You can't be wearing perfume or um, makeup. Anyway, she was arrested because apparently her hijab, her head covering was not on properly. So we have a an arm of the Iranian authorities called the morality police and they drive around in these vans, which are nicknamed death vans. They pick up girls off the street because of their dress, their morality and no one really talks about what happens to them afterwards. They're taken to what are called education centers and re-educated in how they should dress. Um, it's pretty horrific. So she was beaten um, while she was in the van. And um, by the time she arrived at the education center, she had um, concussion 
and um, all sorts of brain injuries. She collapsed. She was taken to hospital and she died shortly after. So she died on the 16th of September. She wouldn't have been the only one, but this particular event just sparked things. And um, thousands of Iranians took to the street, burning their hijabs, literally on the streets, taking their head coverings off and burning them. I mean, those are acts of suicide. Mm. Um, And just an incredible amount of um, courage swept the country and the young people, girls in their schools, taking their head coverings off. And um, just the unity was, it was incredible to watch. I often think, you know, it's not that that sentiment wasn't already there. But I think the people suddenly saw that they there were others who were also willing to take the risk. And when they saw that there were others who were willing to do that, that gave them increased courage. Um, so it took several months that continued all the way through the uh, winter months of last year. And the government kept increasing their the brutality with which they were they responded to the protests. More than 500 young people died through that um, time. Many, many more were tortured. And when I say tortured, I mean horrific. We're talking about um, sexual abuse, um, just horrific. The accounts I've read are, uh, it's very difficult to read, to be honest, some of what these young people endured. Um, They ran out of space in prisons. They were using all sorts of clandestine under uh, sort of locations simply just to torture and intimidate these young people. Um, I heard an interview with some that said that the, the girls would be were raped and then they'd get sent home and said, now go and have our babies. You know, that kind of that kind of intimidation and just the horror that they endured. So um they did persevere in their protests for months, the the people, but after a while, you know, that just breaks your resolve. So well, actually, resolve is the wrong word. It breaks your um, strength. So they, the resolve is still there. They're so committed. And I've heard all sorts of videos since of people saying they might have taken us off the streets, but they haven't silenced us. Um, but these are the events that happened last year. And in some ways, they still continue. Um, just a few days ago, in fact, maybe yesterday, I saw a video of a young girl who had sent her um, something on social media where she'd said... Um, she had been arrested in the protests and during her court proceedings, she had actually slapped the judge and put her middle finger up at him. Um, I'm shocked at the courage, honestly, the audacity. Um, of course, she was then tortured for this. Her finger was broken. And um, the video that she was taking said, I don't think they're going to leave it at that. Um, and I am expecting more consequences. If I disappear, if I'm arrested, if more happens to me, if I'm martyred, then um, remember our fight. You know, we we cannot be fighting alone. And she kept saying, be our voice, be our voice. We need you to empower the, the voice with which we are protesting. And then after her video, I heard that her um, authorities had um, uh, gone to her home. She wasn't there. They'd beaten her father and arrested her mother in her place. Um, so this is what is still happening. This is just recently. Um, the government is working hard to silence you asked me about what we're doing, so maybe I should dive straight into that. When it was all happening last year, you know, there are times where we preach the word and there are times where we are the word. And we have to be really careful not just to be giving people theology, but, you know, the love of Jesus is extremely practical. Jesus himself was extremely practical in the way he loved people and transformed their lives. So when that was all happening, we sent Christian nurses and doctors to the streets 
to be there and to catch people. Uh, hospitals weren't safe. Hospitals were told that they would be shut down and there'd be other consequences if they treated anyone with a gunshot wound or wounds that seemed apparent from protests. So people couldn't go to hospital. People were, um, uh, you know, bleeding in the streets. Um, so we would take them in to our locations and treat them and just give them medical aid. Um, and whenever there is a need, we continue in that way. And then on the spiritual front, we operate from outside the country. So we have a ministry arm called the Pearl of Persia, where we give trauma counseling and all sorts of teaching and guidance and help, uh, whether it's dealing with trauma from this kind of event, or there's a whole lot of other trauma that Iranians face um, from uh, systematic abuse, um, prostitution, drug addiction. There's uh, the numbers for mental health issues are very high. So we help them through the Pearl of Persia ministry that way. That is just, uh, I don't know, man, as an American, it's really hard to hear that because we forget what's happening in the rest of the world. I mean, that is just crazy. And to think that that's just happening day in, day out. What um, has that type of environment, how does that affect someone's religious beliefs? Like growing up in such a Muslim culture. Do they like, you know, here in America, everyone kind of goes, oh, well, you know, if you're a Christian, therefore you're a Republican, or if you're a Republican, therefore you're a Christian, as if somehow those two are combined, yeah. right? But how how does that affect the dominant religion of Islam in that culture? Does it affect it at all? It Does yes, it open yeah, yeah. doors for Christianity? I mean, oh, yes. Yes, I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's, a, it's hard not to dive in because it's killing yeah. it. It's amazing. The enemy, um, you know, thinks sometimes that the harder he controls and squeezes and um, limits, the more successful he is. But God has designed us to be free people and that cry for freedom and that right to choose, you know, that was right back in the Garden of Eden. God knew what was best for Adam and Eve. He could have limited their choice in order for Adam and Eve to thrive, you know, and yet he gave them the choice to reject what was best for them. So right from the beginning, God wanted that for us. And now here we're seeing a, in a situation like this, where their every version of choice is limited from where people can travel, what they can uh, study, what they can read, you know, everything, how they can dress, who they can spend time with. Men and women are not allowed to socialize together unless they're married or related. Um, there's so many layers of control and all that's doing is driving people out of Islam because they're, they're experiencing the chokehold of it and the control mm. of it. And they know deep down it's not right. And so they look for something different. Our challenge as believers is to make sure that we offer the correct alternative because they're looking for an alternative. And we're not the only other voice out there sure. trying to um, win them over. We must make sure that when we're looking for something different, they find Jesus. So yeah. it's it's an exciting time to be serving in a country like Iran. We saw this happen during our lifetime, uh, particularly in the 90s, early 90s, with the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. And Colson wrote a, a book called The Body, which said that a lot of the roots of that revolution in Eastern Europe was actually through the church. And it, it's a powerful book. And he says, this is the part of the story that's not told. And it just seems to me like that 
maybe a similar happening where, as you said, you know, the uh, liberty is something that that God, that's my daughter's name, by the way. I mean, that's ah, something that's right. very important to yeah. God and something that, um, like you said, he could have forced. I, I, I love that comparison. It, it's really exciting to me just to hear that despite that suffering and despite the the bold and courageous action that the people there need to take. I mean, that is that is unreal. I just in my uh, reading this morning, I did a, a, a reading um, from one of my mentors. He wrote this uh, devotional and he was asking, could we go through what they went through in Acts? You know, this kind of persecution. It's just kind of ironic that we're sitting here talking because our faith was rooted in this, you know, the, the early church, this was, this was something they were very familiar with and the gospel thrived despite that. But it's just neat because I think for us, the iron curtain seemed impenetrable. And I think for most Americans, Iran seems like, well, it's just always going to be that way. And, you know, um, it's going to be that trickle of, of missionaries that will change it. And what I love about what transform Iran is doing is it's it's indigenous missionaries that are there the iranian people themselves and i think that is really how it happens you know all across the globe it's it's the people themselves you know that's such a theme and act so i love that um what what's uh on the on the idea of the gospel um what are some of the gospel inroads that you've seen in Iran? What are some ways where people really open up? What are some stories even of just people meeting Jesus that that's excited you over the years? I think you, you hit it right there at the end about meeting with Jesus. Jesus is the inroad. Uh, he is the, the person that Muslims interact with and are um, overwhelmed by, by his love, by his uh, kindness. They know of him um, and they have a misunderstanding of who he really is. And nine out of 10 testimonies that we hear, the conversion stories all come back to the person of Jesus and the um, revelation of him as God. Uh, And usually that is paired with something supernatural. They experience his power in their lives. when there is such a, um, when you're living in a in a place like Iran, the supernatural really comes to the forefront. You know that mm. we're told about how the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so now we're in a thick darkness. So when that light shines, it's particularly bright. That's the challenge for us in the West, where things are a little more lukewarm and a little more grey. For us to be can sure that we are shining bright, that we are sold out. It's in some ways harder for us because that's not tested in the same way that it's tested in a country like Iran. There are no lukewarm Christians in Iran. Even those who are dabbling know this is an all or nothing kind of game. Like you don't, you don't go to church on Sundays and then go to your anything Monday to Saturday. That, that, that would, that wouldn't make any sense because it costs you so much to make a, stand for Jesus. Um, so that, that's the ultimate challenge for us. And just to digress a little bit, and I'll come back to answering more of your question. I was baptized um, in the early 90s in England. 
And I was very excited. And, you know, I'd invited my school friends and the whole thing was, it was, you know, it's just a fun occasion, isn't it? And it, it, I think sometimes, um, well, I know for me, I, I was absolutely baptized for the right reasons, but there was an element of it where it was um, just so excited that I get to do this now. Um, and I was at the back getting changed. And while I was getting changed, my cousin came running in to talk to me and she was crying and she was saying, they've killed him, they've killed him. And I was thinking, like, it, out of nowhere, like, I don't even know who you're talking about. And I found out that this Uncle Hyde that I was telling you about, we just had news of his martyrdom. And I remember the Lord speaking to me then saying, you know what you've just done? This is what this is about. This is an all or nothing call. You know, this is that that's the ultimate commitment that I want from you. He's not necessarily calling me to martyrdom, but in in a figurative, in a um um symbolic way he is, a lot in me has to die for Jesus. Um, so it was a really poignant moment for me. And I think that's what we in the West um need to find a way around to really ensure that we are living in that way. But in Iran, that's tested all the time. And and we talk about the inroads. What happens is that Jesus meets with people and then they know there's going to be a cost here. Do I follow this? But of course, when you encounter Jesus, it's so wonderful that that the the answer is always yes, but you immediately know what that's what that means for all the all that's coming afterwards. Right. Yeah. You know, in the US. Like most of our church planners, um, I, I think what kind of sets us apart from a lot of other church planning type organizations and and rah-rah groups and stuff like that, like our, our tagline at the end of the podcast is, if you want to reach the ones that nobody's reaching, you got to go where nobody's going and do what nobody's doing. And I think back to when Peyton and I were planting in Long Beach, um, what would you say, Peyton, like 30% were felons? Probably another mm. 30, 35, 40% were homeless. Yeah. And, and, and another third, I mean, I remember at one point taking a survey at about a 30% were from the LGBT yeah. Q movement because of where we were in Long Beach. And yeah. God was reaching them too. Like there were, there were no barriers. And so the reason why I bring that up is I know the heart of our church planners is to reach the unreached to reach the, the outcasts. And, um, you know, I recently moved to, to Texas <laughs> and a church planning buddy of mine, he goes, look, if the South is the Bible belt, where we're at is the buckle on the belt. <laughs> and, and it definitely feels that way, right? Like I've never in my life seen so many mega churches wow. on so many corners. Like, it's just, it's a cultural thing. Like you, you, you go to church and it doesn't mean you have a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't even mean you know the story of Jesus. It's just, this is what we do. We go to church. How, how do you, as an individual, how do they reach their, their Muslim brothers and sisters? Like, how, how do they just, is it just, you know, I, I mean, do you bring it up? I mean, do you wait for, for them to bring it up? I mean, how do you do it? When it's literally life or death, like, you know, it's a life or death situation, just having that conversation. It is. It's a risk to even bring it up, but they do. Um, we don't have that um, traditional missionary kind of approach where I would 
you know, specifically go to a, a place to plant a church. That that's, It does happen, but it's very rare. Normally, it's very organic growth. So I've encountered the love of Jesus. I've been freed of my addiction or healed of my cancer or my marriage has been, um, you know, there's a hope in my marriage again. And now suddenly my life is different and people can tell. And it's, it's a starting point for a conversation. And I can't wait to tell the world around me mm-hmm. what Jesus has done for me. And so immediately around me, then all my family and friends are wanting to know more and they're getting saved. And that that's a church. I mean, that's really the yep. definition of a church, isn't it? Yep. It's great hearing what you were saying about the the unreached, the unwelcome, the unloved. You know, those people, those are the very people that Jesus gravitated towards. And isn't it yep. sad that so many of those people are not often welcome or at least don't feel welcome in yep. our traditional churches? Um, it's like we want everyone to be cleaned up and perfect before they're even allowed through the door. And yet it's only after they get through the door and they meet with Jesus that Jesus does his wonderful work in their lives. Um, so it's it, in Iran, it is very much the come as you are. You know, Jesus is meeting people where they are. There are so many broken people, whether it's addiction or lifestyle um, choices or just you know their uh, commitment to Islam even and they're just their false worldview and all of that Jesus just bypasses all of it and suddenly they'll see him in a dream or a vision or they'll watch you know we make sure that we provide a whole range of media that presents the gospel so social media tv radio um, if they're looking then it's there um, and they'll encounter Jesus's love. And then we have a way for them to call us. So they'll contact us and we'll get all sorts from, I saw you on TV to Jesus visited me in my dream and healed my cancer. And, and then what do I do kind of thing? So we then walk with them, we invite them on a year long journey where they can have a weekly call with one of our counselors who's based out of Iran. So that's safe then for both parties. Um, and then they go through, we have a whole curriculum. First, we teach them the foundations of the gospel, of Christian faith, and it just develops organically with them. Normally, we'll cover topics like evangelism, apologetics, and sure enough, church planting comes into it because usually through that process, that person becomes a church planter inadvertently. We'll be on a call and they'll say, I've told all my friends and family what you've just what you've been saying to me. And now I hope you don't mind. I've put you on speakerphone and there's 30 of us in the room and we all want to know. So a church has been planted and this person wasn't even a believer four or five months ago. Um, And that relationship then evolves and we're mentoring them in how they can look after this church. And most churches are planted in this way in Iran. And real people living, living authentic lives are shining bright for Jesus and that catches and then it spreads and churches are planted. There are times where there'll be supernatural directions from the Holy Spirit. We have those stories too, where someone will hear the Lord say, go to this place at this time, look for that person in that jacket. He'll be wanting a Bible. And we hear really fun stories of people going to public places and finding that person and handing them a Bible. You know, that if that was the wrong person, that's an immediate arrest for the person handing over the Bible. And yet always it's, oh my goodness, I've been trying to get hold of one of these. Mm. How did you know? And those conversations. So I yeah. love that. And, you know, th- there was a, something that we've said on this podcast, uh, something that we found uh, talking to missionaries all over the world and being a missionary is the more frontline you go, the more first century it gets. Yeah. And so that's, 
That's just a, a rule. And so I love that you contrasted here with America. Let me ask you real quick. So I love that very practical example in the supernatural busting loose and, and really, uh, you, you realize why in, in Luke's, uh, you know, portrayal of the early church, he says, Hey, they, got on their faces and and sought whatever it was Jesus was talking about with the Holy Spirit, because Jesus said, you're not ready. I need you to go, but you're not ready. You need something. That kind of intense dependence on the Spirit is something that a lot of our church planners run out and don't even think about. And so we're usually like, hey, dum-dum, you know, uh, Acts 1 was written before Acts 2. You all want Acts 2, but you don't want to do what they did in Acts 1. And I love the fact that the Iranian church is um, their experience in this. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it looks like to gather for the Iranian church and what the what the role of prayer is in the Iranian church? Yes. So gathering in person will usually be groups like this. Once there's been a, a time of growth, and I'll talk you through how we do that and and there's pieces of people seasoned and we've had time to really ensure they're not spies and they're the real deal. Then we may connect them to other local churches. Um, but the uh, more formal gathering is a digital church community. So we have what we call Persian community church and about 20 to 25,000 people connect every month with that. And there are various degrees of um, exposure depending on where you're located and what you feel comfortable with. So if you want to be completely anonymous, you could just watch the meetings on social media. Um, then there's a live satellite broadcast. If you want to watch, but then you want to call in, you could do that right through to Zoom meetings. Um, that we have Sunday Zoom meetings where it's uh, like a regular church as far as we can make it, but on Zoom. And then through the week, we have much smaller Zoom prayer rooms where people can come and pray. And you touched on prayer. That's very important because someone from a Muslim background has been indoctrinated on what prayer looks like, how it works, mm. how God responds to prayer. And you know, when we're planting churches outside of our immediate culture, there is a lot to consider in terms of what is the culture of that person and what is their, therefore, their understanding of the nature of God, their own identity, worship, prayer. And we have a lot of work to do in our mission field on all these subjects because there is a... Um, an assumption on what God is like and how he would deal with them. Normally converts in their early um, worship and prayer are extremely um, face in the dirt. You know, I'm not worthy to look up, uh, almost like wailing kind of adoration for God, but also a distance. You know, Allah says he may not be known. He doesn't claim to be love. Um, he's inconsistent. He doesn't promise any kind of outcome from any kind of action. So there's always ambiguity in that relationship. So now there's a process of learning about the true nature of God, how he is consistent, how he his behavior is actually quite predictable unless it's better than we expected. It's always predictable. So we know what, you know, we, he talks about the sacrifices and he says over and over again, and I will accept your sacrifice. Even just that statement is so powerful for someone from a Muslim background because they can be certain that then when they bring something to God, when they're obedient, that God will accept them. That's a huge step in itself. And then what does it look like to pray? How do you dialogue with the Lord? How do you how do you warfare in prayer? These are all completely new concepts. And that's why we have our prayer rooms through the week, because a lot of prayer is learned through 
modeling and, and practicing. So when you're in a community of people who are praying, then you watch and you learn, oh, that person just addressed Jesus like that. You know, can you just be that informal, you know, and so on. So, yeah. Well, that's that's amazing. I mean, thanks so much for sharing. And really, thanks for um, coming on and sharing with us. Um, what I would love is if, you know, church plants, it's really interesting because church planters, they're starting their churches today. And we're telling them, don't get involved in mission tomorrow. Get involved today. Um, if you want to start out right, you start thinking about your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the unreached, and the ends of the earth from day one. And that changes everything about the nature of the church you're planting. It hardwires you for multiplication. It gets you to think globally. All the things that like you would know, and but in the West, it's so hard to communicate with people. Yeah, um, it really so, does. Sorry to interrupt. And also, no, to no. what you're saying, it, uh, the practice of the supernatural, of letting the spirit lead, that starts in your immediate. Um, yes. I remember discussing this with my mom and saying, how, you know, how do we explain this? That it's so normal in our Iranian world and so abnormal in our Western world. Mm. And she said, God, God's supernatural isn't a nice accessory. It's, it's, he's supernatural when we need him to be supernatural. If we're not in a place where only the supernatural will do, then I don't need the Holy Spirit to tie my shoelaces. <laughs> you know, what am I doing that is beyond me that only God can do? That's when God comes through. So if we're practicing living like that, um, I have a sign right by at my, in my closet on the way out so I can check it. What does risk look like today? Are we taking wow. risks? Um, wow. If we're not taking risks, then we don't need God. Mm, that's so good. That's so good. Well, um, our our guest today has been Lana Silk from Transform Iran. Uh, if you want to get involved, church planner, I was looking at you when I said, hey, a lot of church planners, they think they'll start mission tomorrow. If you want to get involved uh, with a ministry that's on the cutting edge of a movement happening right now, and you want to maybe stretch out into that uh, that 1040, that, that place where often we don't hear about God moving, but has been the concentrated place of prayer for those in missionary circles, then you wouldn't have to look much further than Transform Iran. We actually uh, are going to hopefully be talking a little bit more uh, with Lana outside of this. Um, as some of you know that uh, Church Plantology has received a five-year license to be translated into Farsi. So we would love to have um, that happen as well to resource the church. We don't know. Uh, it's too early to tell. We're, we're just having an interview. We're, we'll, we'll talk about all that later. But uh, anyways, guys, uh, definitely check them out. Um, Lana, where can they go to find out more about Transform Iran? Our website is simply that, transformiran.com. Um, there's a whole lot of resource there on the, um, if you want to learn about the history of this, of the space, if you want to read updates and testimonies, if you want to be regularly informed, then I would encourage people to sign up to our newsletter. We send an email once a month and we share a little bit about the ministry at the start. And then most of it is about what can you specifically be praying for? Um, I remember, um, right at the early, in my early twenties with my heart for Iran burning bright and then a mission, my church did a mission to Sweden. 
And I remember writing it off thinking, well, that's not mine. And the Lord spoke to me and said, serve someone else's vision first, <laughs> and then wow. I will give you yours. So sometimes, depending on the journey, God would have us just pray for something that is outside of what we'd considered and sow into it and see God bless mission that's already happening, and God will trust us with ours too. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Guys, again, our guest today has been Lana Silk, and the mission is Transform Iran. This has been Peyton Jones, Pete Mitchell, and our train on the Church Planner Podcast. <laughs> Your mic is much better now. They can't hear the train. <laughs> that's there good. was a train um, in the background? <laughs> there was. He was honking right when he went by, too. <laughs>